Well, happy Father's Day. <laughs> Thanks for joining us uh, this Sunday at New City. Um, and I do just want to say to the fathers and to the men in the room, thank you for what you do. Uh, you are irreplaceable. You matter. You are not inherently toxic because you're a man. And we need good men and good fathers in our culture today. And so thank you for who you are, for what you do. You literally cannot be replaced. And I hope you feel honored today. And if today is a difficult day for you for whatever reason, again, thanks for being with us. And I just pray that you would be encouraged uh, today that God would meet you where you are if this is a hard day for you as well. Um, as I begin, I want to share uh, one more story. I was, I was tempted to continue the dad joke theme, but I will resist. Uh, this one is of a four-year-old who uh, spilled his soda on the rug in the living room, and he wanted to clean the mess up by himself. And so he told his mom what happened, and she told him, no worries, go get the mop that's just outside the back door. And so quickly, the four-year-old ran to get the mop. Suddenly, uh, he was scared because as he opens the back door, he noticed that it was dark outside. And so he went back to his mom, told her what the problem was. It's dark outside. I'm afraid to go out there. And so uh, she told him uh, reassuringly, hey, son, it's going to be okay uh, that Jesus is everywhere and he will protect you even in dark places. And so this put a smile on the little boy's face. And so he runs back to the back door, opens it ever so slightly, just enough to poke his head out the door. And he yells outside, Jesus, if you're out there, could you pass me the mop? <laughs> now, obviously, that's not exactly maybe what the mom meant by Jesus is with you everywhere you go. But, but here's what I do know. I think the question for us is sometimes, what does it mean for God to be with us? Right? Scripture talks about God is with us where we go. What does it actually mean? And, and really, if, with that question, there's a lot of promises in Scripture. In fact, we just recently sang, or just a few minutes ago, sang a song about God's promises. Uh, the question that we're going to look at this morning is as we read these promises and try to understand them is this, what should we know about the promises of God? How do they work? How do they operate? What happens when we think God has promised us something that seems to be taking a long time, perhaps too long, long to come to fruition? What should we know about the promises of God? How do they work and how should we respond to them? That's the question for us this morning as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. And so um, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open with me to Genesis chapter 15 and 16? Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one somewhere around you. You can read along with us, page 11 in there. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Now, we've got two chapters to go through this morning, and so we're going to be moving pretty quickly. But again, chapter 15 and 16, we are picking up the story of... Abram, also known as Abraham, his, his name is going to be changed here soon. If you have been with us, we, we saw all the stuff that happened in Genesis through 1 through 11. We're not going to recap it all here. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the story of Abram, who God calls, who God reveals himself to him because of how people have uh, responded morally. They, they're, they're living morally, wickedly. What they understand about God theologically is wrong. And so God uh, reveals himself to Abram, promises him, hey, if you come and follow me, I will make your name great. I will move you into a land to possess, that your offspring will come great, it will become great, and through you, somehow, some way, the entire world will be blessed. Now, again, it's important to remember, uh, Abram is getting up there in age, as we'll see again today, and he still and his wife Sarai have no children. In the ancient world, having kids was a very big deal. Your legacy was based off who, you would, who would remember you and the family name. And so this sounds great that God's going to make him a, a great nation, but he has no kids. How is that actually going to work out? Now, last week, again, we saw he settled back in the land of Canaan. God said, I'm going to give you this land for your inheritance to your kids or to your offspring. Uh, a lot, also his nephew who was with him, uh, gets taken by some rival kings. And so Abraham goes out, rescues Lot, but does not take any of the plunder or any of the people 
people. He gives all of it back to the people that he beat in battle because he says he's going to trust the Lord for his provision. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about how Abraham shows us what does it look like to live with an abundant mentality that God will provide what we need when we need it even if that's different than what we might want in the moment. And so today, we're picking up the story, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says this. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. And so again, these events are what we read last week, if you were with us, uh, that Abraham trusted the Lord, that he sacrificed to God. He did not take anything out of force, that he's going to trust the Lord to provide for him and his family and the people that are with him what he needs. And so God responds to his faithfulness, says, I will make your reward very great. Uh, And so uh, this is what it says, verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring. And so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Again, this is a common practice in the ancient world, particularly for more wealthy families. Um, If you're going to be great, again, you need a legacy. You need kids. You need offspring to pass your name down through. And God has not allowed him and his wife, Sarai, to have any kids yet. And so what was common practice is that you you would pick a servant, a slave, someone else in your household who was running things for you, that when you passed away, everything would be transferred to them and they would be in charge of everything. And so this is what Abram is saying. God, you say you're going to make me great great. In the ancient world, again, large family, lots of kids. That's what makes you great. I have none. Everything I have is going to be given to someone who's actually not even of my own offspring, not even of my own blood. And so again, as cool as it might be to hear from God as we've been reading through these stories, uh, what I want us to do is to get our mindset in the characters or in, into these biblical characters of what it would have been actually like for them. God has now appeared to Abraham a couple of times, but it has to be frustrating and hard for Abram actually to trust the Lord because he has no kids. Even though God has said multiple times, you will have offspring. And so if you're Abram, you're thinking, how is this actually going to work? It kind of remind, reminds me if you've seen the movie Karate Kid, or maybe even recently on Netflix, they have Cobra Kai, right? But in Karate Kid, you have this scrawny guy, uh, think me without all my muscles, and that's the Karate Kid. And uh, he's got this old, this, this wide sage mask. And what does he do at the beginning of his training? Wax on, wax off. He's like teaching this kid to do all these chores. And the kid is thinking, how in the world does wax on, wax off, does painting, does scrubbing floors, all these things, how is this actually going to make me a great fighter? This does not make any sense. And I think this, is, this certainly has to be some of what Abram is thinking. You keep saying, I'm going to be great. I've trusted you. I've, I've moved my family. I've given up everything that I've known. But I have no idea how this is actually going to happen. And so verse four, it continues. Now the word of the Lord came to him. That's Abram. This one will not be your heir. So talking about the slave, his servant, who's kind of maybe his second in command, if you will. He's saying that one, Eliza, will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And so again, I just want to point out real quickly, uh, this is actually pretty remarkable on Abram's part. Again, God is promising him he is going to become great, that his, his offspring will be too numerous to count, and he is literally going to have a child of his own, his own biological child. He's gonna, all this is going to be happening to you, but again, Abram still has no idea how. 
Like it hasn't happened yet. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. He has no idea actually how, and yet he trusted the Lord or he believed the Lord. Now, when I say trusted, when you read the word believe, believe in belief or believed in, and in the New Testament talking about Jesus, it's really best to understand that word as trust. And I say that because sometimes when we say belief in our modern culture today, we kind of mean blind faith in the midst of all doubt. Like your team's down 20 with like five minutes to go. And it's like, I believe my team's going to win. Like, and so, and so we, we, we read believe as kind of like, I don't think this is actually going to happen, but you know, maybe I'll just believe and hopefully it turns out. When scripture talks about belief, it's talking about trust, that we trust what the Lord says is true, or we trust that Jesus is enough for us. And so what's happening here, I just want to point out, it's a little technical for a second, but I want to explain what's happening here. Uh, what's happening here, it's not that, that Abram believed the Lord in terms of like a salvific sense, like he believed in Jesus for salvation. Okay, Obviously, Jesus has not even come yet. That's not something he could do. What's happening here in a strict sense is that he trusted God's word, or he trusted God's promise that what God would grant him would actually come to fruition, that somehow some way, he would have offspring too numerous to count. And for us, this is meant to be seen as a righteous and an admirable act. In fact, this passage is actually quoted four times in the New Testament. The fact that, that Abram trusted the Lord and it was credited to him as righteous. I'm going to read just one of them for you. One of the times is in Romans chapter 4. It's the Apostle Paul. The book of Romans was originally written to a Jewish and a Gentile Christian audience. In other words, it was written to Jews who had come to follow the way of Jesus and non-Jewish people who were not familiar with the law of the Old Testament who had come to follow Jesus. And so Romans for in particular, Paul is writing to Jewish Christians, and he says this, starting in verse 1, it'll be on the screen. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? So the Jews come from Abraham. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And he's going to quote Genesis here. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift. That is something that is owed because you've earned it. Verse 5, but to the one, who, the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So let me just explain briefly what, what this is saying. To be clear here, what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is using Abraham as an analogy for us as followers of Jesus today for, for how salvation actually works. Paul, Paul here is not saying that Abraham was saved by faith in the sense of he trusted in Jesus for the salvation of his sins because Abraham hadn't come yet. That's not what he's saying. But rather that faith, not the law, or in particular for the Jewish people, not the Old Testament law, that faith was the basis for righteousness that brought covenant blessing. In other words, because here Abram decides, I'm going to trust the Lord, God is going to bless him. Before Abram does anything or promises anything or becomes a really good person, God is going to bless Abraham purely because he trusts that what God said is actually going to happen. That he was credited as righteous, not because of what he did, but because he trusted in God and what God said was going to happen actually happened. That's what's happening here. In other words, it was not Abraham's actions that brought God's covenant to him, which we're going to read about here in just a second, but his trust in God and his God's promises that, God, that brought about God's covenant to him. It is because Abram trusted God that God is going to be faithful to him, not because Abram earned it. 
That is what Paul is saying here in Romans, that Abraham's faith is analogous to the faith that saves us as followers of Jesus, that just like their great forefather for the ones that were Jews or ethnically Jewish, they were seen that Abram was seen as righteous due to his faith. So now those of us after Jesus has come, who, who trust in Christ for the salvation of our sins, for the repentance and grace that he offers, we are given the righteousness of God, not because we're really good people or because we're really smart or because we said, I'm going to stop looking at porn or I'm going to stop cussing or I'm going to stop doing X, Y, and Z, but simply because we trusted that Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross is enough. Or put another way, as we're looking at the promises of God this morning, here's what this text is telling us, and that is that God's promises are received by faith, that they are received by trust, that we even today experience salvation through Christ by trust, not by our effort. Now, of course, the implication here is that if we do trust God, we will obey him. We will strive to follow him. We will want to honor him with our life. But what we're seeing here is that it's not a transaction. This is not a, I do good, God will love me. I do good, God will give me grace. That God has given us everything, and he's simply inviting us to trust and receive. Now, to be clear, this is not saying that our faith is passive. It's not just saying, well, I prayed a prayer one time, so now I can do whatever I want because I'm good. But what what I am saying here, and what Genesis and Romans is trying to point out here, is that our faith, what we do, rather our actions, cannot buy God's promises by your effort. That's not how it works. Our lives reflect what we actually believe, yes, therefore our actions matter, but it is not what gives us grace. What gives us grace is that God and his grace and his love and his mercy for us sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. If you've been with us through Genesis, we've seen person after person fail time after time that we cannot overcome the sin and temptation of the world, that we need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so Jesus comes in the form of a man, lives a perfect life that none of us have lived, died the death that we deserve so that anyone trusts in his grace and his righteousness and his salvation can receive God's mercy and love. It's not about us. It's about what Christ has done. It is a gift of grace. It is not of works. And this actually reminds me of a funny story that I, I read one time of a Sunday school teacher who was trying to explain to her, her, her young like kindergarten class how salvation works. And so the Sunday school teacher was trying to teach these kids like, hey, it's not about being a good person. It's about understanding that we need Jesus and that Jesus gives us grace. And so she's teaching her, she's teaching this class, this Sunday school lesson. And then she says this, if I sold my house and my car and had a big garage sale and gave all the money to the church, would I get into heaven? No, the children answered. And she's like, great, okay, they're getting it. It's not about like me trying to, to earn myself and do all these things. And so she asked another question. Um, if I cleaned the church every day and I mowed the yard and I kept everything neat and tiny, would I then get into heaven? And again, the kids answered, no. And so she's feeling really good about herself. Well, she continued, then how can I get into heaven? At which point there's silence for a few seconds. And then in the back of the room, a little five-year-old boy shouts, you've got to be dead. <laughs> <clears throat> Now, of course, that's not quite, I think, what the Sunday school teacher was trying to get at, although the kid was correct. The point here is that God's promises are received by faith and trust in what Jesus accomplished, not what we try to do on our own. And this is what Abram has experienced here. His faith, his trust in the Lord was credited as righteous. He was seen as righteous, not because he was a great person, but because he trusted in the promises of God. And so then it says this, if we keep reading in chapter 15, verse 7, 
He also said to him, so God says this to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In other words, the land of Canaan where Abram and his people and his traveling party are, verse 8. But he said, Abram responds, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? So you say I'm going to have a, be a great nation. You say that my offspring are going to possess and own the land that we're going to live in. How do I know? And so the next few verses of what happens is that God covenants officially with Abram. So they get a bunch of animals. They cut them in half. There's this covenantal ceremony that God is promising. Here is how you know that what I said is going to come to pass. I'm going to set up my covenant with you. So he kills these animals. They do this covenant uh, ritual. And then in verse 13, we'll pick up. It then says this. Then the Lord said to Abram, so after they do this kind of covenant ritual, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. Of course, this is a foreshadowing of the book of Exodus when the Israelites are going to live in the land of Egypt for a little over 400 years. Verse 15, but you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And the fourth generation, they will return here. In other words, they will return from their slave enslavement to where you currently are. They will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Anyways, the Amorites are the people who currently live in the land. And then verse 18, it says this. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I will give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. And then in that last couple of verses of chapter 15, it goes on to name a bunch of clans and people who currently live in the land that Abraham's offspring will one day possess. So again, what's happening here real quick in verse 13, it's talking about uh, there'll be slave resident aliens for 400 years. It's talking about in Egypt, which the Israelites end up being in Egypt for 430 years that Abram will eventually, if you're wondering how we get the name Israelites, Abram, as we'll see, is eventually going to have a son named Isaac who will have a son named Jacob. So Jacob is going to be Abram's grandson. Abram's name is going to be changed to Israel, and that's where you get the name for the Israelites. So in the fourth generation, when it says they will return here, that's an ancient Hebrew way. It's denoting like a, um, a cycle of time or a lifespan. So what he's saying here, in four cycles of time, or in four lifespans, uh, your people, the pe your offspring who will be enslaved, will come back to this place. And we know in Genesis chapter 50, it seems to suggest that at this point in time, or this will be you know, a little bit after the time of Abram, but 110 years was considered a good lifespan. So about, after about four of those, or around four of those, your offspring will possess this land. Now, I do want to point out one other thing really quickly. In verse 16, it's part of the reason for this massive multi-generation, multi-hundred years delay. Like, why doesn't God just give Abram his, his land and his people now? Well, part of the reason what it says in verse 16 is that for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, this is significant. In other words, what is also happening is that God is giving the time for the people who currently possess and live in the land. He's giving them time for their sin to be fully saturated and for the evil to be fully awful before he dispossesses them. In other words, he's giving them time to repent and to stop what they're actually doing, which means that later on, when you read about Israel's conquest in the land of Canaan, it is based on God's judgment of the people who are living there, not some unfounded aggression. And we're going to see some of this as we go through Genesis some of the child sacrifice, some of the sexual rape and violence that would go on. Again, I off, I've said this before as we've gone through Genesis. Sometimes we get understandably really uncomfortable when we read in the Old Testament of God's conquest in Canaan. 
I think if we could like go back in time and like watch a video of what was actually going on in the land at that time, we would be still uncomfortable, but for a different reason. I think if we actually saw and knew what was taking place in these peoples in this land, what would make us uncomfortable is why God allowed it to go on for so long. I think we would be so appalled by the evil and wickedness that we would be like, God, I can't believe you waited this long. But clearly in his grace and kindness and patience, he's trying to give these people a chance to turn from their sin and trust in him. Now, that's a side note, but one of the other things we see here when it talks about God's promises is this, and that is that the process from God's promise to fulfillment is often marked by pain. The process from God's promises to fulfillment oftentimes, certainly in this situation and many times in our own lives, is often marked by pain. Right? This is an amazing thing that, Abram, that God is promising Abram, and it is going to be awful until it actually happens. In fact, we know this as well. God's promised ultimately to redeem the world through Abram, through the Israelites, through a man named Jesus. Even this was a painful thing, that Jesus came, that he was in perfect unity in the Godhead for all of eternity, yet Jesus takes the sin in the world. God the Father turns his faith, face away from God the Son as he takes all the sin and judgment that we rightly deserve. It was a painful thing that Jesus did for us. Not just physically painful as well, but just an awful thing so that we can experience God's promises. And again, we've mentioned this before too as we've been going through Genesis. Oftentimes, some of our frustration with God and, and our maybe, maybe, maybe doubts that creep in if you are a follower of Jesus is because we often assume that the roads to God's promises will look a certain way even if he didn't say that. So if we think God is leading us towards something or he's promised us something or we're, pro- or we're pursuing something that is good and godly, we often assume here's what the road's gonna look like. And then when the road doesn't look like how we assumed it was gonna look like, we get frustrated with God. Even though God never said this is how it's going to actually go down. But yet when you read in scripture time and time again, that experiencing God's promises are often marked by suffering of the people who were going to experience what God had for them. And this is true for God's promise to Abram as well. Now, knowing that life can be hard, that God's promises are not always a linear, a linear like trajectory from point A to point B, it does not make, any, it make it any easier to experience pain and suffering. But it is important for us to know that and to remember that your pain and your suffering is not because God has has forgotten you or has abandoned you or that you've done something wrong. That just because you are experiencing pain and suffering and doubt, it does not mean that you've been faithful enough or you haven't done enough good things, but it's just because sometimes the suffering God is inviting us into walk with him in that moment, but it is not necessarily indicative of our faith at that time. Now, what we're going to see is that's exactly what's happening here. So chapter 15 happens. God promises this amazing thing. He's in the land. We're going to have lots of kids. He has this covenant. They cut through these animals. They do all these things. And so I don't know about you. If I'm Abraham, I'm thinking any day now, any any month now, my wife's going to get pregnant. This is going to happen. And yet when you turn the page to chapter 16, as we'll see in a second, it has been 10 years, 10 years, nothing. Nothing. So it says this in verse 1 of chapter 16. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So again, 10 years, I, I, I think like this. This isn't like I ate bad pizza. Like you knew without a doubt this was God. He appears to you. He does a sacrifice. How in the world does this take 10 years? 
So, so again, they pointed out. Now, uh, as a side note, how does Sarai have an Egyptian slave or an Egyptian servant? Well, of course, the answer to that question, if you've been with us, is from Genesis chapter 13, when Abram was disobedient. They go to Egypt. He says Sarai is his sister, not his wife, because he's afraid for his life. So, so Pharaoh takes uh, Abram's sister, and he marries her. Then Pharaoh realizes that, this is, that you actually are Abram's wife, and so he kind of kicks them out. He gives them back Sarah. He's like, get out of here. He gives them a whole bunch of uh, sheep and animals and people because he's afraid of this God who has done these things to him. And so Hagar is actually only here because of the unfaithfulness of Abram and is going to be misused and mistreated again. So verse two, it says this, Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, husband Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Cain, Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. So I just want to point something out. Obviously, to our modern sensibilities, rightly so, we are put off by what is going on here. This actually, however, was a common practice in the ancient world. Like, like when you have, particularly for wealthy families, if you have a husband and his wife has not been able to bear children, they would, they would often give him another wife or he would take another wife through which to have children. Now, the, the, the child would be not the, the, uh, the second wife or the surrogate wife. It would not be her kid. It would be the husband and the, the original wife's child. But they would kind of use this woman to have a child because his first wife, his main wife, if you will, could not have children. So this is what they do. Now, again, oftentimes the Bible does not um, tell us positive or negative. It just kind of says, here's what happens. And then as the story unfolds, you, you begin to see, was this a good idea or not? Which we'll see this was not something they necessarily should have done. So uh, it's also uh, helpful to know ages. Sarai is likely around 75 years old here. We know this because she was 65 when Abram's family originally left. Now, again, they are going to live a little bit older than maybe most of us do today. However, this is still getting a little bit older. I mean, this is still kind of, I don't know, maybe 40, 50, if you were to kind of put it on modern day terms. So it's still later than most people would typically have their first child. And so again, after God covenants with Abraham, it's been 10 years. They do something that we see as awful, but I, I have to say, I think you might understand why. God has explicitly promised, you're going to have a son. You have not have a son. Abram probably thinking, well, then I've got to do something to make this happen. Maybe I need to make this happen on my own. Now, for Hagar, again, she has no right. She has no say. Having a child was a very big deal, but of course, not necessarily like this, because it's not actually going to be her own child. And so they're going to take this woman, they're going to use her as property, and they're going to take this child from her, assuming, well, this is how we're going to make God's promise come to fruition. Now, I also want to say this real quickly before I keep reading. I just want to say, this, Abraham and Sarai, who are making this decision, this is the father and mother of our faith. And as discouraging as this story might be for you and for me, I think in some ways this is also encouraging, that no one is beyond the grace of God. That if God is going to use them, after they've, Abram's already made one bad decision in Genesis chapter 12 here a few weeks ago, he makes a bad decision here. He's going to make some more bad decisions as we continue to read. However, God still uses them. God still does not turn his back on them. And if God can reuse and redeem them in spite of what they have done, then he can do the same for us. So often we think, well, God, I, you know, I haven't been following God long enough or I've done all these bad things and so God can't love me. If you want to play the comparison game, I'm assuming most of us in this room haven't done something like this. Enslaved somebody, gotten them pregnant, and taken their child from them. Like, so, so if God can use them, I just want to say his grace is sufficient for you. 
Verse 4, we'll keep reading. It says this. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. So Abram sleeps with Hagar. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. So Sarai starts to get angry and jealous at Hagar. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want to her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her, that Hagar runs away. So again, Abram does what they said they were going to do. Hagar becomes pregnant. Uh, She begins to look down on Sarai. There's a lot going on here. The text doesn't say because it moves kind of quickly, but the relationship is not good. Hagar in many ways probably thinks of herself as better than Sarai because after all, she's the one that can have the kid. Sarai can't. And so the relationship is strained. Again, there's a lot of dynamics at play, so you might be able to understand why. But then Sarai gets a mad for Abram apparently not stepping in. So apparently she thinks, Abram, you need to stop this and you haven't. And so we need to do something about it. And so she blames Abram for this. But then Abram was like, well, do it to her whatever you want. Now, this has to, she had to have mistreated Hagar so much that for her to run away is pretty much almost a death sentence in the ancient world. Right? Because if you're running away, uh, you're, you're a woman who's pregnant on your own, most likely traveling on your own in the ancient world was a very dangerous place to be. And where are you going to go? So this had to have been bad for her, for her to leave like everything she knows just because she can't bear it anymore. So it says this in verse seven, the angel of the Lord found her, this is Hagar, by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, Shur, if you don't know your middle ancient Near Eastern uh, geographical knowledge, which I'm sure most of us probably don't, I didn't either, uh, but Shur means she's headed back towards Egypt. So she's headed back to where she was first from. Now, it's debated here that this angel of the Lord, is this just an angel or is this the pre-incarnate Jesus? Like, is Jesus appearing to her? Is this the same Jesus that's going to come and appear, you know, thousands of years later when he comes? I, I don't think it really matters if this is an angel or this is Jesus for the story, but people like to speculate on it. Um, but it's not really relevant to what's actually taking place. And so here's what happens. This angel of the Lord says this in verse 8. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. Right? So, so this angel of the Lord meets Hagar while she is running away. She's in a desperate situation. To be uh, pregnant and to be not married means you're pretty much unmarriable or you're, and your life is not going to go well going forward. It's a, not a great place to be in the ancient world. Right? There is no, in this time, there is no, I'm going to go somewhere else and start over. That's not how this worked in the ancient world. Uh, she would be viewed as pretty much unmarriable since she's, married, she's, got a, she's pregnant out of wedlock with some man that they don't even know who he is if she's going to a new place. At, best, she would only be hired for menial poverty level type of a job, like barely scraping by. This is, this is her fate from, from here on out for what's happened to her. And even, like I said, traveling by herself, if she can even get to Egypt without dying or being raped again, there's not a great chance that that actually is going to happen. And so this angel of God tells her to go back to submit herself to Sarai, even though she has been mistreated from her. However, if you do so, you will be blessed. So go back, don't view yourself as better than Sarai, but you will be blessed. That God meets Hagar in the midst of her pain and promise her to give, promises to give her hope. 
So again, she's also going to experience the great promise of God, but it's going to be difficult for her in order to, before she actually experiences it. And again, as a side note, I just want to point this out. This is the same exact type of people that Jesus chases down in the Gospels. What is he doing? Tax collectors, sinners, outcasts, prostitutes. He is going to people who are at the lowest of the low, whether they made decisions or things happened to them that were outside of their control that led them to be where they are. This is the same people that Jesus meets and offers grace and his promise of salvation too. So, so that's what happens. And the angel of the Lord tells her she's going to have a son in the next couple of verses who, who actually is going to lead numerous descendants. In other words, the son that Hagar has is going to be the father of a great nation. Now, it's a little bit of a spoiler alert. We're going to see next week uh, that this will not be the promised child from whom all the nations of the world will be blessed, even though Abram and Sarah, I think this is the child that is going to be the promised heir that God promised. It's actually not going to be the one. It's actually kind of the opposite. In fact, there's going to be a lot of hostility between Hagar's son and Abraham and Ham and Sarai's son and their offspring. And in Genesis chapter 25, we'll actually see Isaac, who is the promised heir from Abraham and Sarai, and Ishmael, who is the son of Hagar, will live in a separation from each other. They will not get along. But however, God still meets her where she is. He still promises her the best thing you could hear in the ancient world, that your name will be great, that your offspring will be numerous. And so in response, here's what Hagar says, verse 13. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy. For she said, in this place, I have actually seen the one who has seen me. I've seen the one who sees me. El Roy literally means God of my seeing. And it's actually a pun in Hebrew. It's actually a pun that means either God sees me or the God I see. In other words, what she's saying, that God has seen and cured for her, and she sees God's goodness towards her. It's kind of a play on words, and this is actually the only time in all of Scripture that a human being names God. The only time. And it is a Gentile, it's a non-Jew, it's a non-Israelite who is on the run for her life. God meets her in her distress, and to her, this is the God who cares. This is the God who cares. And so verse 15, here's how chapter 16 ends. It says this. She goes back, verse 15. So Hagar gave, gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when, Abram, uh, when Ishmael was born to Abram, or when Hagar had Ishmael. So Abram names Ishmael. Again, this is a big deal. In the ancient world, when a father names a child, it means he's accepting the child into the family. Right, when the, after, the, after the child is born, they find out if it's a boy or girl, all these things. When a father names a child, he means, yes, I've accepted this child in my family. It's going to be my child. He recognizes this child. He names him at his own. And at this point, as we'll see next week, he thinks that this is the child that God has promised. He thinks, well, what we've done, maybe Hagar doesn't like it, but clearly I've gotten a child. This is the one that God has promised. So he names him Ishmael. Now, again, as we draw to a close here, I just want to point this out. This whole two-chapter storyline, verse chapter 15 and 16, that we have read, is a, repeat, is a result of people who have aching hearts. Again, hear me, not at all condoning what they have done, but is this not relatable? That Abram had been promised something from God multiple times, mind you, and nothing has happened. I think I probably would have done the same thing if I were Sarai and Abram. 
clearly God wants this to happen. It hasn't happened. It's been 10 years. So there must be something I need to do in order to make this happen. Again, they've given up everything to be here. It's been over a decade. There's still nothing. I mean, can you imagine waiting a decade and you still see nothing that God has promised? And to that answer, I would say to many of you, I think the answer is yes. Now, the circumstance might be different, but many of you, you can relate to the pain of wanting something good and godly and holy and it not happening. I mean, your pain literally, like Abram and Sarai, could be your own infertility. It could be wanting a spouse. It could be wanting to mend a broken relationship with a child or a family member or praying for the friend for years to come to know the grace and mercy of Jesus and they still have not. Or failure after failure after failure of trying to overcome an addiction or a sin issue or trying to overcome a deep trauma that has happened to you, that has wounded you, that you can never seem to get to the other side of. And you wonder, where is God? That's what you wonder. What you desire, you think, man, what I desire is a good thing. It's a godly thing. It's not selfish. It's not wrong. Like, why is this not happening? It is not self-serving for me to get this thing that I desire. And you're trying to walk with the Lord, but it still is not happening. And I want to say, that's hard. Many of you right now today are in a spot where you are in a really hard spot. But I think you and I need to remember, you are not alone. That you are in a room full of people who can relate to waiting on God in their own way. In fact, just like in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, John writes the future promise in, in, Genesis, in Revelation chapter 21 where he said there's going to be no more tears and lying and cheating. Right? We're longing for that day when everything wrong will be made right. When Jesus will return and reestablish his kingdom where everyone who follows him can be welcomed into his perfect kingdom full of grace and truth and love. We long those things for those things. But for now, just like Abram and Sarai, we wait for now, sometimes we try to force things we should not have forced because we are becoming impatient because it is hard to wait. And to that, I want to read one more thing as I close. Here's what Peter, the apostle Peter, who was a follower of Jesus, one of Jesus' closest disciples, a leader of the early church, he writes this in chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. He says, dear, dear friends, do not overlook this one fact. As you wait, as you suffer, as you long for God to move. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. We might think God is waiting for no reason, but there is something that he is doing that we cannot fully understand or see in this moment. And so we wait. And so again, today, this morning, what should we know of the promises of God? We've talked about that. Here's what I want to end with, and that's this reality, that God's promises give hope to the hurting. God's promises give hope to the hurting. When things aren't going the way you want, what you don't understand, when you're trying to be faithful, when things aren't turning out, God has not abandoned you. He has not turned his back for you. He loves you. His promises will be redeemed. They will be seen in full. To all those who are in Christ, God's grace, mercy, and love will be overwhelming to you. And not, maybe not fully in this life, but in the life to come. But I have to point this out. God's promises are only for those who are in Christ. So when we read in the scriptures, God's love, his care, his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace, it is not for people who do not know or who are not a part of the family of God. It is for people who have understood, who have been honest about their brokenness, who have said, God, I have not figured this out on my own. I need Jesus' blood and righteousness to welcome me into God's kingdom. If you want the promises of God fulfilled in your life, 
You have to trust in the power and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's how we get his promises. Not our effort, not by being a better person, not by coming to church every week and praying every week and doing all these things that, that make us a good person. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I think those are great things to do. But that is not what redeems you. That is not what gives you God's promises. It is by trusting what Christ has done for you and not trying to earn it on your own. God's promises give hope to the hurting.